Welcome to episode 207 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, uh, the interview today will be with Nathan Sales, uh, who's the ambassador at large and coordinator for counterterrorism at the State Department. Uh, and an alumnus of the uh, policy uh, uh, division of the Department of Homeland Security when I was there. Uh, um, and I'm going to be talking to Nathan separately, so we'll just finish up our uh, news roundup and then uh, move to the interview. Uh, joining us for the news roundup, uh, we've got a, uh, again, a, uh, a newbie and a couple of uh, old uh, regulars now. Uh, you, Brian, you qualify now as an old regular. Uh, uh, Brian Egan is a, a former uh, legal advisor to the State Department, to the National Security Council, and now does international law here at Steptoe. Uh, Jamil Jaffer is also qualifying as an old regular. He's the founder of the National Security Institute and God knows what else, uh, adjunct professor at George Mason. Uh, uh, Jamil, welcome. Thanks, Stuart. And Matthew Hyman, uh, who is the Vice President, Corporate Secretary, and Associate General Counsel at Johnson Controls, uh, a visiting scholar at Jamil's uh, uh, National Security Institute, uh, and uh, an alumnus of the National Security Division at the Justice Department. Matthew, uh, this is your first, uh, but probably not your last time on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Stuart. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and holding the record to returning, for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. We might as well jump right in. Uh, I thought the probably one of the more newsworthy events of the uh, week was uh, created by the Broadcom-Qualcomm fight, which has dragged Cepheus into the fight, and Cepheus seems to have, uh, after a little bit of dragging, jumped in with both feet. Brian? Yeah, the uh, Qualcomm has released a couple of uh, notices, letters that Cepheus has put forward uh, that really are are taking very strong positions uh, uh, with expressing very strong national security concerns with this deal, including, as we understand it as most recently, is a letter that was issued yesterday about a a Broadcom proposal uh, meeting to talk about re-domiciling here in the United States. So a pretty unprecedented showing by Cepheus. Yeah, all of this is unprecedented. Getting involved in a proxy fight is unprecedented. Uh, They had to decide whether they were going to do it, and boy, did they. Uh, They have sent a letter kind of uh, sketching a serious set of reservations about the national security impact of the transaction and not even saying we don't trust Broadcom, but saying we don't think you invest enough. Uh, and if you took over Qualcomm, we're afraid they won't do the R&D that they need to do for the U.S. to help uh, to be a major player in 5G standardization. Yeah, very forward-looking, uh, 5G-oriented notice. Uh, a different theory. We've talked a lot about other theories of national security. This one does seem to be qualitatively different than some of the others that have been in the news this year. So um, there was talk. I don't think I've seen an order, but apparently there was an order saying that Broadcom should not move to redomicile without providing notice. Um, and they've said they are moving to redomicile and have said they're in compliance. So I assume they sent notice. Uh, I, any um, anything further to shed on that? 
No, I th- so there have been news reports today uh, that CFIUS issued a letter yesterday uh, to the parties indicating that they believe that Broadcom may have violated uh, an earlier order issued by CFIUS in this matter uh, by moving ahead with a shareholder meeting to talk about the redomiciling issue. Uh, and suggesting that CFIUS may consider a number of actions, including potentially blocking the deal. So uh, this is uh, just out. I, I, I don't even have the details myself, but again, uh, kind of waving into uncharted territory a little bit by CFIUS here. Yeah, and it, it, it's not that um, Broadcom lacks for competent advice. They've got a very competent CFIUS lawyer, uh, um, a one gets the impression that they, after getting these letters, think that things are not going well and they would be better off with the lawsuit than with uh, uh, continuing to pursue the process. So uh, uh, we may see a lawsuit because there are going to be questions about whether uh, Broadcom should be treated as a foreign company uh, and uh, um, whether any of these other orders are justified by the statute. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting case for CFIUS practitioners. Uh, probably not so interesting for Qualcomm and Broadcom. Exactly. No, the, 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 the worst <laughs> cases are the ones uh, when you think, yeah, this is going to end up in the uh, casebook. Uh, all right. Um, so this is part of, or at least, this is tied in, uh, to my mind, and there's some language in the uh, the letters that suggest that, to a deep-seated unease that has really surfaced in this administration, but we see it in the press, about what the role of the Chinese economy and Chinese tech is going to be. Uh, and I, I, I put it down to we've never had a competitor a national security competitor, somebody that we actually could imagine an armed conflict with, um, who had an economy that was as big or bigger than ours, a tech sector that was every bit as competent as ours, uh, um, and um, a lot of the assumptions that U.S. military planning are based on uh, assume that We've got the best technology in a 10-year lead, uh, and uh, uh, that's not looking to, like the case here, right? Um, uh, uh, Jamil, uh, um, are you seeing this when you talk to policymakers? Well, yeah, and I think there's a deep concern with uh, with China's uh, <coughs> role in technology um, and the steps they've taken to you know, over the long run, um, and we've now learned about a long-term Chinese effort to siphon intellectual property out of the United States, but you've seen more recent uh, sort of versions of that with uh, pressing U.S. companies to hand over intellectual property or access to uh, information about their products before entering the Chinese market. Uh, we've seen efforts uh, to set up uh, Chinese-funded uh, investment funds in the Silicon Valley um, that, that the U.S. government has expressed some concern about. Uh, being used for text transfer. Um, and so there are a range of things that are going on with China that, um, you know, raise concerns from a national security perspective. And part of it, too, you know, is the administration's uh, new and sort of burgeoning view uh, expressed the national security strategy, one that we've talked about a lot historically, but really first found its expression in writing in this most recent national security strategy that economic security really is a core component of national security. And when it comes to tech, that is uh, more true than perhaps any other area. So, uh, an important area to keep watching um, with all these with all these articles uh, and and news stories. Brian, yeah, I mean, I I think on 
the differences between U.S. and China economic policies, I kind of think is a nonpartisan issue that's probably gone back for some time. It's got a, a different and maybe a sharper edge in this administration than it has. But I think if you look back in the last two administrations, you see uh, – It was getting sharper and sharper as, as we went along. Exactly. As, as, as the Chinese government – picked off one after another successful American company in their economy and said, yeah, not so much. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, so it's it's uh, I think a real question is putting aside the the defensive tools, what are the kind of offensive tools that the administration can be using to help US companies get better access to Chinese markets? You know, what can they be doing to advocate for responsible regulations in the area of cybersecurity in China, for example, um investments in China? Are there things that the government can do to really open things up on the US side, which is something that companies have been, you know, complaining about and asking for for a long time? Yeah, and I'm not sure I, you know, I think since the economic meltdown, the Chinese leadership, especially under Xi, has been saying, you know, their system, which we thought we had to imitate, it sucks. We'd, we'd rather have a government party-led economy, which will provide a backstop for the failings of capitalism. Uh, our system is better than your system, uh, and we're not going to take the state out of the economy. Uh, and if your folks want to uh, play here, they're going to have to have a, a Communist Party sell at the top of their companies, too. Yeah, it's... Uh I don't know what the answer is on the U.S. side either, but it is uh, clearly something that the the Trump administration is going to be focused on going forward. We've seen a little bit of this, too. The WTO complaint that the, the USTR under Trump filed about uh, the, the cyber law is one example. Yeah, uh, but we're going to see plenty more of that is my guess, and I'm just not sure the WTO is set up to have this uh, – handle this fight. I, so, I agree. Uh, if the, you know, the Chinese are not living up to all their WTO uh, uh, agreements, uh, and increasingly the response of the United States is to say, well, two, two can break their WTO <laughs> obligations. Uh, uh, what, are the, what are the Chinese going to do about this? I mean, you know, there is a grain of truth. Uh, to Trump's statement that uh, um, uh, trade wars are easy to win if you're the guy who's buying all the other guy's stuff. Uh, and, and eventually uh, um, you end up uh, uh, hurting the economy that is doing the most exporting. Um, all right. Uh, well, it, it is fascinating. And the other thing that I thought was notable is two articles this uh, week about uh, – Chinese government influence on American campuses, uh, pointing first to the Confucian, Confucius Institutes and then also to the Chinese Student and Scholar Associations, both of which seem to be funded by the government, both of which uh, – the Chinese government, both of which influence and have expectations for their on-campus members uh, and for the institutions that they're uh, providing the funds for, uh, and all of which are increasingly towing a uh, uh, Communist Party line that uh, President Xi is um, less worried about enforcing publicly. Well, you know, it sort of raises an interesting question about our immigration policy, too, because, you know, one of the things that we, we I think, make an interesting mistake about is we bring a lot of these students, foreign students here to the United States to study, give them a great education, oftentimes access to, to sort of the cutting edge and R&D technology taking place at universities, and then we force them to go home, you know, with, with rare exceptions, the case of H-1B students, 
And you have to wonder whether, as we're looking at these larger immigration questions, and to be sure, sort of, uh, you know, recommending new immigration or more expansive immigration policies or more expansive stay policies is not the current bent of the current administration or the debate in Congress. But you have to wonder here whether if that isn't part of the problem, the way we think about uh, bringing students or educating them and then push them to go back home to whether it's China or India or anywhere else in the world where uh, we're potentially competing on technology issues. Yeah, although actually there are there, there I, I worked on some of these things at the tail end of uh, the uh, George W. Bush administration, and there is an optional practical training um, for STEM students that allows you essentially to go work for a year after you finish college. A year, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's uh, and right. then and a lot of people take advantage of that. Yeah, and then you get H-1B uh, it, uh, is your next uh, uh, stepping stone. Uh, so it is certainly possible to extend for a long time. The idea that everybody's forced to go home is... Uh, uh, is probably overstated. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I think if you look at the history of Korean students who came here, uh, many of them stayed, worked in companies for four or five years, and then went back to Korea because they were just more comfortable there or they could get a better uh, uh, lifestyle uh, at home, at what they still thought of as home. So yeah, we should also be realistic about... Uh, whether everybody's going to stay, uh, especially if their entire undergraduate experience is um, more or less shaped by the CSSA and the Confucius Institute and a certain amount of uh, group discipline that says uh, you're here but never forget where your roots are. Uh, all this talk about democracy is dangerous uh, uh, and un-Chinese too. I, I mean, I, I think it's a, an area to, that the U.S. government has to be watching. I, I'm a little skeptical about making too big of an overgeneralization in this space. I mean, I, I think that it's important that we know the sources of funding, as you said, Stuart. I'm, I'm not sure that the articles that I've seen, you know, are evidence of a great, a, a grand billions of dollars pouring in. No, it's, it's like $5,000 per association, which is sort of what you'd expect for the parachutists club. Exactly. Yes, and and I you know I don't know what the U.S. government does with respect to American clubs overseas. Does the State Department fund those things? I mean, I, I'm not trying to downplay this as an area that should be focused on, but I do think it's it's probably worth uh, taking a hard look before before people, particularly in the government, make pretty broad statements about what's going on. Yes, yes. Although I uh, my memory is that these uh, Chinese student associations. Um, Require members to say yes. I, I I am. I understand that I will love the motherland. <laughs> I understand that I will protect China's honor and image. And you can join if you have a Chinese passport or if you're an American of Chinese descent who agrees to accept these principles. Uh, so you know. Uh, uh, not an entirely comfortable thing to have happening on our campus. Not not at all. No, I agree. Okay. The SEC spoke on. Uh, coin offerings, uh, and according to the papers, it dropped the value of Bitcoin for 10%, by 10% uh, uh, briefly, essentially saying uh, a lot of people who are offering to handle your Bitcoins and sell you and make markets are not actually regulated exchanges. Uh, um, Matthew, uh, how serious uh, was or how big a blow to digital coin offerings was the SEC's um, pretty strong language? 
Yeah, I, it's hard to say. It was pretty strong language, but it was sort of a cloud of dust rather than a beam of light coming out of the SEC because as soon as they made the pronouncement, there were a lot of people that really spent a lot of time thinking about the 34 Act, which, of course, regulates exchanges, saying these aren't exchanges as the 34 Act and the underlying regulations define them. That being said, I think it shows you what a fragile industry we're talking about when even a muddled statement from the SEC can send uh, the market valuation sinking by 10% on a given day. So I think what it does tell you is a lot of time needs to be spent by the in-house lawyers at these and the external lawyers for these um, these cryptocurrency exchanges thinking about what does this mean and, and, more importantly, what should their government relations associations and teams be thinking about as they sit down with their friends at the SEC on Capitol Hill to figure out where do they fit in this you know, bureaucratic maze. So you see it more as a cri de coeur. Uh, oh my God, bad things are happening and we have to have something. Here is yeah. a stick. We'll try st- beating them with a stick. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, I've got a view on regulation and it often begins with the regulator claiming they have jurisdiction over different sectors and industries. And often that claim is made with not a lot of foundation. And unfortunately, the only way you can sort it out often is to go to court and have a judge say you don't have that. But that being said, if you're a private market operator and you're worried about your business, you've got to toe that line and be really careful because you don't want to be caught out on the wrong side of it. So um, if the SEC wanted to get involved in uh, uh, issues that are just on the horizon, they probably ought to be taking a look at the IETF's standard-setting process uh, for TLS 1.3, which is basically – we used to call it SSL. Uh, I haven't called it that for a long time, but it's what encrypts the communic- your, your connection to a website uh, from your computer to the website's um, uh, server. Uh, and there's been a, an encrypted tunnel there for a long time. Uh, this has been a big problem for enterprises for almost as long as it's existed because enterprises have to see what's leaving their system, what's coming into their system. They can't just say, oh, well, it's encrypted, so it's probably safe. Uh, and no enterprise wants every single computer in that, uh, uh, in their network. Uh, talking to outsiders without any visibility or ability to um, scan the traffic uh, for malware, uh, for exfiltration of data, uh, for uh, recording, for the SEC requirements that you actually uh, uh, keep track of what your traders are saying to customers. Um, uh, the IETF uh, has essentially said, yeah, well, screw that. Uh, we believe in privacy uh, and we hate everybody who interferes with privacy, including all of you people running uh, uh, enterprise networks. Uh, and so they are proposing a standard that gives us all the benefit of forward secrecy, which I've never fully uh, grasped the enthusiasm for, but I think I do now. I think it's a, an ideological movement. It's not really responding to a serious problem. The serious problem it purports to respond to is somebody might collect all of your communications, encrypted communications, for years and years, and then if they ever get a, a hold of the key, they'll be able, able to go back and read everything, uh, as if they wanted to read my stuff from a year ago, um, uh, my browsing habits from a year ago. Uh, and in an effort to defeat that, they've essentially said, we're going to set up the uh, connection and the key is going to disappear as soon as the message has gone. And that means you cannot break the 
the encrypted tunnel at any point, uh, which is mostly what enterprises have been doing. They've been saying, fine, we own the, um, the client that's sitting on your desktop, so we will go tell it to recognize a particular uh, 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 encryption or authentication key that we still control. We'll decrypt all of your communication. We'll look for all the malware, and then we'll re-encrypt it and send it on. Um, you won't be able to do that, apparently, with this system. Uh, IETF said, well, well, there would be a back door if we let people do that. Uh, and uh, if you if you want to do this, their, their, their position is, you should all go out and buy new gear, uh, set up new uh, uh, software systems, uh, do everything uh, uh, to stand on your head because we are the IETF and we wrote the standard. Uh, it's a, an astonishing act of arrogance <laughs> on the part of uh, uh, the engineers at IETF. Uh, uh, apparently, the Financial Services Roundtable has been trying to stop them. I, they, I called them up and said, you know, uh, can you give me a comment? Crickets. They are apparently afraid of the publicity that says they are handmaidens of Big Brother. Mm. So, I, if you're a government uh, uh, who requires business to keep track of what your employees do in dealing with the outside world, and every government agency that's any good probably does that now that cybersecurity is part of that, uh, uh, you need to get involved in the IETF because uh, they're going to uh, act on this sometime in the next month or so. Okay, um, so is there a staffing crisis at the intelligence agencies, or shouldn't the intelligence agencies know a lot about IETF and what it's doing and uh, uh, what it should be doing? Uh, and there's a generalized sense that uh, uh, it's hard to hire good people, and as soon as you go through all the pain and agony of hiring and training and validating the competence of good people, they get hired away. Uh, uh, Matthew, uh, that sounds plausible to me. Yeah. Uh, the question is, what should we be doing about it? Well, I think it calls upon something. I think it calls upon the intelligence community to do something it always struggles to do, which is think creatively about structure and staffing for itself. And I think if they don't figure this out, um, they're going to be chasing talent that's at the middle of the pack or the bottom of the pack instead of the top-tier talent because the top-tier talent is all going to go to the private sector. And as you've seen in some of the recent press clippings, they talk about the dynamic that's changed where it used to be if you wanted to work on uh, national geospatial things, you had to go work for NGIA. Well, you don't have to do that now. You can go work for Fitbit uh, because they offer the same challenges and the same dynamics in the workplace. So I think it's really going to call upon the IC to think differently about how it staffs. And I know the, to the extent that the IC thinks about itself, they like to think about boxes and org structure and who owns what turf. They don't think a lot about people and what motivates young people with terrific talent. And I think they're going to, they're going to have to get more creative about it. Um, otherwise, the entire IC gets outsourced instead of just one third of it, which is what it is today. Yeah. I, well, uh, that all sounds quite right, and yet the efforts that the government has made to be more friendly to uh, uh, young, talented people mm-hmm. is part of the problem that, that, that you know, yep. gave us Snowden. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a terrible bind that you're in if you're a manager uh, in the community right now because you want more flexibility. You want to create an environment that attracts these bright, young, creative minds, 
But that same flexibility and given the joints is what allows someone like a Snowden. So the short answer is it's tough. They need to figure out an answer, and it's not going to be easy to figure that answer out. Yep, I I'm afraid that's right. There probably are some things you could do. Uh, employee sharing where you say, yes, you can leave for a time, but you have to come back or we'll pay for part of your college and you have to spend two or three years here. And then if you go away and make more money, uh, we want you to come back later in your career. There's a bunch of things that can be done in that regard, I think. Yeah, I think along those same lines, too. I mean, you think about what they do for public service individuals in college with loan forgiveness uh, you think about the terrific incentives the military can put forward to young, bright minds and how they get the, the best and the brightest to come to the military. I think the IC needs to adopt some of those things. And they probably need a little more support on Capitol Hill for these ideas, too, to put them into practice and to get some prominent politicians to talk about the importance of this. Yep. Okay, last topic. Uh, um, the FBI director, Director Ray, uh, gave a speech in which he said, this is the first time I think a, a FBI director has said this, we do not, if you call us because you had an intrusion, we don't think it's our job to tell the SEC or the FTC uh, that you have this problem, which is kind of remarkable. I, I, although, you know, they're the FBI. They never told anybody anything before. So it's not really a change <laughs> in policy. But um, he clearly drew this lesson from his time in private practice. Uh, and, and so uh, my guess is it's a, a heartfelt policy. Yeah, I think it is. Um, so as someone that comes from private practice, while I'm not in this conference room with you, Stuart, speaking on behalf of Johnson Controls, um, I know a lot of um, companies in the private sector wrestle with when do you disclose, when do you involve law enforcement, and what can follow on from that. And it's clear to me that Director Ray has decided, and the FBI has decided, and presumably the administration, to make the trade, which is we'd rather know early and often about breach issues, and we will trade away, at least at a certain level, our ability to go pursue you if we think you were lazy or negligent, not having the right defenses in place. Um, frankly, it's a trade I support, and that has nothing to do with my affiliation with a publicly listed company in the U.S. I just think it's the right trade, because on balance, I would be more worried about our cybersecurity defenses than I am about maybe giving uh, some directors a bloody nose over what they did or didn't invest in. Yeah, fine. Well, this has been a large issue, as, as we all know, with respect to information sharing as between the government and the private sector. Industry has long been concerned about the regulatory interests of, of the federal agencies and it makes them less likely to share. And, you know, that's a big part of the problem. And, you know, CISA fixed part of that problem uh, to a limited extent where it provided some regulatory exceptions. But uh, the problem is that uh, writ large, um, it didn't contain as robust a protection on regulatory matters as it could have. That is the Cyber Information Sharing Act uh, passed in 2015. And so um, there are improvements there to be made in the law. This is definitely a positive step for the FBI to take if they're uh, successful um, in convincing companies that they won't uh, share information with regulators. At the same time, you know, the challenge, of course, is the FBI saying they don't see it as their job doesn't mean that regulatory agencies or other re- or regulatory departments within the government can't come to the FBI and try to get it, try to extract it from them at the end of the day. And so companies will continue to be in a position of having to think this through until there's real uh, legal regulatory protection in place, uh, stronger than that passed in CISA. Uh, but, but an important first step, at least, uh, in, in building, rebuilding that trust between industry and the government that's so critical to really 
treating this problem as what it is, which is a national level problem. Yeah, I, I agree with with Jamil though that if you're a um, outside counsel, if you're a publicly traded company, you take this statement and you think about your other risks, the SEC, the FTC, state regulators, and I'm not sure how much comfort this actually gives you when you when when you kind of do the calculus, uh, risk reward calculus. I don't know, Matthew, if you no, have a view on that. I agree with that. I mean, I think until there's clear-cut legislation that, you know, sort of widens that safe harbor that at least was open by CISA, but it's not completely, uh, doesn't give complete comfort. Um, I think you're right. And, you know, and, and the other obvious point is to the extent that one regulatory agency decides to go proceed and launch investigations, they're going to look to the FBI for help to do it. So I, I'm not sure if when the FBI gets the call from DOJ or whomever else, they say, oh, we're not helping with that, mm. uh, you know, outsource it to someone else. So I, it'll be interesting to see how they square the circle. All right. Uh, well, as, um, once again, proving that cybersecurity is a great field for people who are comfortable with ambiguity. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, that con- concludes the news roundup. Uh, let's go on to our interview with Nathan Sales. So the topic, uh, Ambassador Sales, that I wanted to ask you about, just because it's so close to my heart, was the UN Security Council resolution uh, that the administration got through early on. Uh, Essentially saying, you nations of the world, we expect you to collect travel data, uh, um, API, passenger information, and uh, uh, travel reservation data, and use it to counter terrorism. Um, when I was in government with you, um, that was an incredibly controversial thing to say. Uh, and the idea that it would be binding international law 10 years later would have been staggering to us. And so my, my question is, how'd you do it? <laughs> uh, your listeners probably can't see this, but I've got a big grin on my face right now as, uh, as to match yours. Um, you know, I think a lot's happened in the past 10 years. You know, when, when, when I was working for you at DHS, it was quite difficult to convince international partners of the need to use this tool against a, a particular threat that we faced. Of course, in the U.S., we knew um, that PNR is an incredibly powerful tool for doing all sorts of things, spotting unknown threats. You can do link analysis. Yep. You know, has anybody used the same phone number? Is this 9-11 hijacker? Um, but you can also use it to do more sophisticated pattern analysis. Um, what is the profile of somebody who wants to travel from the United States to Syria to fight for ISIS? Well, maybe they're traveling on certain airlines or booking tickets at certain times of day or traveling through certain cities. Um, so we've been using this tool for a long time now to, to great effect. Um, but as you know very well, uh, the rest of the world didn't always see things the way the United States saw things. Uh, so what's different? I think one of the things that's different is um, Paris and Brussels. Mm-hmm. I think that the attacks in Paris in November of 2015 by an ISIS cell uh, that infiltrated the continent from Europe uh, and managed to defeat all of Europe's then extant border security tools really galvanized elite opinion and uh, public opinion was probably already there. Um, we want to be kept safe from this terrorist threat. But I think the real change was um, that elite opinion in Europe suddenly realized this is a very severe threat. We don't have tools that are adequate to addressing it and we need to develop those capabilities. Um, so that 
response was initially seen at the EU level and mm -hmm. the national level, where the EU directed its member states to adopt PNR systems of their own with a deadline of May of 2018, just about a month and a half from now. Uh, and that sort of set the stage for a much larger international effort. Now that the EU is on board with the importance of these border security tools, uh, the stage was set for the rest of the international community to be persuaded as well. Um, you know, I keep, I keep pinching myself uh, yes. at how willing the rest of the world was to follow America's lead on this. Um, because it, it really is the case that we've internationalized a number of the tools that we've used in the United States to keep our people safe since 9-11. Uh, not just PNR, but also collecting biometrics at the border. Right. All, all, all the passport stuff. Right, yep. right. passport stuff, uh, watch lists of known and suspected terrorists. We've been doing this for a decade and a half. Um, you know, the rest of the world has to live up to the same standard now. That's exciting. I, um, now, the one fly in that ointment is the European Court of Justice, which, um, as usual, didn't get the memo uh, and uh, wrote a uh, an extraordinarily activist um, and hostile opinion about uh, the PNR agreement that Europe had with Canada. Uh, Canada's agreement was softer than ours in terms of being uh, more respectful of the privacy pieties. Uh, and, uh, and so you could, if you read the ECJ's opinion uh, about Canada, you could say, well, there's no way the U.S. deal is going to survive that kind of scrutiny. Uh, where are we with that? And um, can we get help from the European Commission now that they've uh, seen the light? Uh, can we get help from the U.N. Security Council? Well, um, I'm going to be a sort of very precise lawyer now and, and point out that that adverse decision um, struck down an agreement between the EU and Canada. Uh, the U.S. was not a party. The U.S. agreement was not on the table. Um, but like you, we in the State Department and throughout the interagency, you know, we're aware of this decision. We're troubled by what it means for cooperation between Canada and the EU, and we're troubled about what it could possibly mean for, for our agreement. Now, as far as we're concerned, um, our agreement is still in force. Um, it's still binding on both sides of the Atlantic. We have no interest in renegotiating it. Um, and to be candid, any of the conditions that the European Court of Justice sought to impose on the Canadian agreement, if those were sought to be applied to the United States, it would be a non-starter. Those sorts of proposals would be dead on arrival. It's simply, the United States simply will not uh, acquiesce to a requirement that, for instance, before you share information, you ask a judge. Right. Um, talk about a wall in the run-up to 9-11. This is a wall on steroids, yes. um, and, and we're not uh, in a position to entertain that kind of constraint on our ability to share information uh, and, and keep our people safe. Um, what effect does that new Security Council resolution have? Well, I, I don't know that it speaks directly, but my hope is that it contributes atmosphere to the, the conversation that will be taking place between the Canadians and, and the EU. As you said, it's now binding international law. Um, the European Court of Justice cares about international law, so my, my hope is um, that that will inform their understanding of what their commitments under international law are and what their obligations are. So I, I, I so envy you 
the opportunity to go to Europe and preach respect for international law to uh, people who are not really fully on board. Uh, it's, uh, it must be a, an exciting prospect. We'll have fun with that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any vignettes from the process of getting this uh, through? Where, uh, where did the idea come from? Had it been cooking already at the uh, Security Council uh, uh, when uh, the State Department came to it, or was it something uh, that uh, the State Department uh, decided to push? This was very much a U.S.-led, U.S.-driven process. Um, we took stock of where things stood in light of the state of play against ISIS. Um, so as you know, back in 2014, the UN Security Council adopted a resolution, 2178, calling on member states to take a number of actions with respect to foreign terrorist fighters right. who were heading into Syria and Iraq to fight for ISIS. Um, a lot's happened in the three years since then. Yeah, now, we're all coming home. <laughs> well, and so it's time to think about another resolution. So that was really the catalyst for us in the State Department. Um, the landscape is changing. The threat is changing. We have some good tools on the books, both domestically and internationally, um, but it struck us as an opportune time to think about the overall legal architecture and updating it to meet this new challenge. Yeah, so I, I just was talking to somebody at DHS who's taking a new job, and I said, you know, at any given time, there are probably 100 policies I'd like to advance, and 40 of them are simply not possible to advance, and 10 of them will suddenly become possible if you keep your wits about you. And, and clearly, this is uh, um, the State Department and the Counterterrorism Office seizing an opportunity that... Uh, um, suddenly opened up, sort of like a, a hole in the line and uh, plunging in for the, the touchdown. It's great. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so let me ask now, you've, you've, you've done this at DHS and worked many of the same technology issues. Now you're doing it at State. What's different? Hmm. Um, one thing that's different is the environment, the international environment, uh, which I mentioned a moment ago. Um, I think it's easier now for, for us. I mean, you're giving us a high five for, for 2396, and we'll, we'll take the congratulations. But, um, you know, there's a sense in which we're pushing on an open door that was locked and barred and chained uh, and probably welded uh, a decade and a half yes. ago. Um, so, so part of what's different is we now are operating in an environment where our allies are as committed as we are um, to taking you know, robust, meaningful action. 2396 is a good example of that. The EU directive on PNR, uh, which I can't take credit for, uh, right. but is evidence of this trend uh, from several years ago, is another piece of, uh, of evidence. Um, so that's, that's one thing that's different. Another thing that's different is um, I think other governments are more used to working with American diplomats than they are to working with American law enforcement or border security officials. So I think uh, from my perch here at the State Department, um, we have sort of existing diplomatic and foreign policy channels uh, that have been used for you know, dozens of different issues, dozens of different crises over the decades. So uh, we can sort of just plug into those existing lines of effort. And I think um, for uh, a foreign government looking at a request coming from you know, a non-diplomat, whether it's from the FBI or DHS, they might not be as sure about what to do with that or who, who owns that request. How do you respond to that? Now, as other governments um, stand up their own 
DHS equivalents. I think you'll start to see um, the comparative advantage that state has in terms of connectivity start to go away a bit. You know, Australia is standing up a, a, their own DHS. Maybe they've done it already. Um, if I were a DHS, I'd, I'd already know the answer to that. Um, you know, that, that may change the calculus. But, you know, countries um, that are close allies of the United States, they're accustomed to doing business through diplomatic channels. Um, and so we've been able to take advantage of that here. So you're, just the fact that you're wearing a, a, a different hat for you, but a hat that's familiar to them. Uh, and I have to take this moment to tease you. You're also wearing different shoes. So I mean, <laughs> where are the cowboy boots? Did, did, did you have to retire them to, to take this job? Yeah, they gave me uh, wingtips and loafers when I joined the State Department. Uh, the, the cowboy boots are locked away. <laughs> uh, well, hopefully locked away in your heart. Uh, um, so one of the things that's new in the last 10 years that is technology and terrorism related is the rise of social media and the effort to uh, stop the use of social media for recruiting terrorists, for spreading uh, terrorist uh, uh, enthusiasm. Um, and it, it strikes me as a new technology that has come along really since the post 9-11 enthusiasm for using every technical tool we could to stop terrorism. Um, and I don't see a uh, the same enthusiasm on the part of Silicon Valley that we saw uh, in 2002 um, a, or the same familiarity on the government's part with what can we do, uh, the same sense of certainty about it. Uh, um, Europe's done more in some respects, partly because they don't have the same First Amendment uh, issues. Uh, uh, but what's your sense about how good a job we are doing um, both stopping terrorist use of social media and using social media to stop terrorism? Mm -hmm. uh, I think we could do better. Um, I think the industry is doing a lot. And I think part of the reason why they are focusing on this issue now in a way that they haven't in the past is because of the perceived threat of European regulatory action. Right. Um, this is sort of a 180-degree phase from the world we were living in in 2006-2007 when it was the threat of American regulatory enforcement that um, really spurred private companies to act, particularly airlines when it comes to travel data and so on. Um, so what are we doing in the U.S. about, about this issue? Um, in contrast to the European approach, which has emphasized you know, specific metrics that must be met take it down within X number of hours or... Or within one hour. Or within so, an hour, yeah. right, right? So there's a goalpost uh, moving question. Take it down within X amount of time or, you know, reap the whirlwind. Um, in the U.S., we've favored a more collaborative approach. Partly that's because of First Amendment concerns. Uh, we, we have, as you said, First Amendment constraints that European governments don't. And I, for one, am glad that we have those First Amendment constraints that, that other governments don't. Um, but it's not just about law, it's also about effectiveness. In my experience, um, technology companies respond better to the carrot than to the stick many times. Um, we'll all remember after San Bernardino, there was a, a, an effort by the FBI to get access to uh, technology devices owned by the, the shooter and his wife, actually not owned by the shooter, owned by his employer, the municipality whose Christmas party he shot, shot up. Um, and there was a 
fair amount of resistance um, on the part of Silicon Valley. Um, some might say sanctimony on the part of Silicon Valley uh, at the prospect of cooperating with a uh, investigation of not a hypothetical future terrorist risk, but an actual crime that had been committed. Um, I don't believe that that reluctance was justified, um, but I'm also wary of the fact that heavy-handed requests for assistance um, or the threat of mandatory obligations um, could provoke that kind of response again. Um, so I think, in my experience, working collaboratively with Silicon Valley can often produce a better response um, than the threat of regulatory intervention. Um, in response to... Or, or at least being the good cop might, yeah, well, might help. Let the Europeans uh, be the bad cop. Well... Um, I'm not wearing <laughs> cowboy boots or you know uh, motorcycle boots either, so I, I can't I can't claim credit for that title. But um, um, I, I do think that they've gotten the message in Silicon Valley, mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that's a promising illustration of that is this new uh, forum that they've created, the Global Internet Forum to Counterterrorism. Um, it basically provides an opportunity for incumbents in the market um, to share best practices with some of the new entrants that don't have the resources or capabilities to, for instance, scan their network traffic to find out, all right, who's looking at beheading videos based on pattern analysis or traffic analysis. Um, so that, that's a promising step. Um, I think it's a step in the right direction. I think it's also a platform for further collaboration between Silicon Valley and, uh, you know, national and international bodies that are committed to investigating these threats and keeping our people safe. I don't think this solves the problem, but I think it's a step in the right direction. I, it, it makes sense. Um, the thing I worry about in this context is um, the First Amendment isn't really much protection for speech that isn't popular, at least speech that isn't popular in Berlin or uh, uh, Cupertino. Uh, because the First Amendment just says the U.S. government can't tell them what to do. But if uh, uh, authorities in Berlin or Brussels or uh, if uh, engineers in Cupertino don't like your speech, they're just going to take it down. And you're, you're out of luck, even though much of the speech we're used to these days takes place on social platforms as opposed to on Internet uh, blogs. Um, and the... European approach to countering violent extremism really does have two very different emphases. One, they want to shut down the most violent and extreme Islamic terrorist speech. And second, they want to shut down speech that is highly critical of Islam and Islamic terror terrorism. Um, and they don't really draw much of a distinction between how hard they want to come down on those two things. And that's a message that Silicon Valley is getting, and you get a strong sense that uh, um, they're as enthusiastic about taking down speech to the right of Donald Trump as they are taking down speech to, you know, the violent uh, side of ISIS. Uh, I don't know how we address that. I mean, it's counter to our traditions and our uh, um, view of speech, uh, but all of the legal incentives and the diplomatic incentives are to let other countries tell us what speech we can hear in the United States. Right. So, um, you know, this, these are private companies that are not bound by the First Amendment. Right. Um, so um, they are within their legal rights to 
allow on their platforms what they want and what they don't want. Um, so, you know, the, the, the terms of service. All right, that's right. All, that's, all of it says that. That's we basically can take it down if we want. To. That's basically your, your your constitution, as it were, of of, of Silicon Valley. Um, so while the First Amendment isn't directly applicable, I I do think that um, it sort of informs our policy judgment about where we should draw the lines in terms of what kind of content should be available and, and what shouldn't. Um, it's not just a legal document, uh, the First Amendment. It's also an expression of liberal values that are applicable in, in private settings as well as the relationship between citizens and, and government. And so, you know, on, on, on that issue, I'm going to put my law professor hat back on here for a moment. I, I continue to think that the best remedy for bad speech is more speech. Now, there's certain sorts of content that have no redeeming value whatsoever, a, a beheading right. video, um, videos of American soldiers being ambushed. Um, there's no harm to public discourse from the immediate re removal of that kind of content from, from social media or any other platform. Um, other kinds of content, you know, um, uh, I'm not sure that the best approach is silencing it. Um, yeah. Certain content, you know, you, if you silence it, you sort of give them a, a sort of free speech martyrdom. Um, and so in those circumstances, you, you would want alternative content to sort of explain in a reasoned way, in a way that attempts to persuade you know, why this message is false, why this interpretation of scripture is, is erroneous. Um, now, between those two poles, there's an awful lot of gray. And, and I'm not sure that you could come up with, you know, a bright line rule that would say, well, you know, carry the two. So, right delete this content, but leave that one up. Um, I think it's going to be very situational, and you have to sort of apply those principles um, to the facts at hand based on you know, what this particular content is and the context in which it arises. But you know, generally speaking, um, you know, I'm, as an American, I'm quite comfortable with the idea that if you dislike somebody's message, you don't shut them down, you try to persuade. So the other thing, the other responsibility in this office is to designate terrorists and terrorist organizations, uh, um, which leads on to sanctions. Uh, um, and whenever I think of sanctions, I now think of Treasury and there are all the OFAC sanctions. Uh, um, how is it that the State Department is in the business of designating terrorists? And uh, um, what's the difference between the processes at State and, and here at, uh, at, or sorry, and over at Treasury? Uh, so there's a short answer and then there's a longer answer. Um, the, the short answer is because Congress and the President gave us these tools. And, and the longer answer is the reason they gave us those tools um, is because um, these are instruments for advancing foreign policy objectives, um, foreign policy being entrusted to this department. Let me take a step back, though, and, and give you some numbers first, uh, numbers that I'm pretty proud of. So uh, we've really done uh, quite an quite a accelerated um, number of terrorist designations over the past year. So, uh, actually, just since the beginning of the calendar year, I should say. Last year at this time, we designated six terrorist groups or individuals. Um, this year, we designated, I think, 23, mm -hmm. uh, with a couple more in train. So, we really dramatically uh, increased the pace of designations. That's important because if you cut off the, the, the financial resources that flow to terrorist groups, um, you can really inhibit their ability to commit attacks. You know, you don't just want to stop the bomber, you want to stop the money man who buys the bomb. So why is that a State Department responsibility? Um, well, like I said a second ago, it's because 
there are a number of foreign policy tools that we use to constrain terrorists. We do capacity building, teach prosecutors in less developed countries how to bring a successful prosecution of terrorists. We do border security capacity building. Here's the ATSG system, the Automated Targeting System Global, which we've made available to a number of countries around the world to help them screen passengers coming across the border. And we also do designations because that's one tool that we use in the international sphere to draw attention to the terrorist threat, to cut off resources, to motivate other countries to do the same. And it sort of nests into a UN process as well. As we're doing designations here in the United States, there are terrorist groups and individuals that we're pushing to have designated by the relevant UN bodies. So Treasury has an important role to play in this, to be sure. They have their own designations. Under Executive Order 13-224, we sort of split the baby, as it were. So this is the order that President Bush signed shortly after 9-11, authorizing the designation of SDGT or specially designated global terrorists. So Treasury has the authority to designate individuals and groups for providing support to terrorists. Here at State, our authority under the EO is to designate actual terrorists. So sometimes we do it, sometimes Treasury does it, depending on the circumstances. So last question. I know you're having a good time. What's the biggest surprise in this job that you didn't expect? What's the biggest surprise? I guess I'd go back to the international terrain that we're working on. My experience doing international relations in the CT space was one in which the United States was very much the Vox Clementis in deserto. We were sort of isolated, as you well recall. Pick and shovel work it was. Yeah, it was. It really was. That's not the environment we're in now. I think the rise of ISIS and its global ambitions, its global reach since 2014 has really galvanized international opinion. It's demonstrated the seriousness of the threat and it's created a real sense of purpose and will to address that threat. The Paris attacks and the Brussels attacks were only the two best known examples of this, but I think that the response to those attacks sort of is representative of a larger trend that we're seeing. When ISIS is taking territory in the Philippines, when they're holding territory in Syria and Iraq, when they're carrying out attacks in the heart of Western Europe, the world's going to pay attention. So I don't know if I should be surprised that there's a lot more will to address this problem now, but I will say it's just a very different environment than the last time you and I served together. It's great. Usually when I came into a government job, I had to learn it all on the job. You have a background that makes you ideally suited to seize this moment and accomplish a lot. You sound like my mother. Mom, are you listening? All right. Well, congratulations and thanks very much. That's Ambassador Nathan Sales.
Thanks to Ambassador Nathan Sales, to Brian Egan, to Jamil Jaffer, and to Matthew Hyman, our first-timer. Uh, this has been Episode 207 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, uh, it's official. The Cyberlaw Podcast is now in the market for a part-time intern to uh, uh, worry about all things podcasty. Uh, so if you're a fan or you just need a job, uh, uh, go look on the Steptoe website. You have to poke around. We just, you know, of course, as soon as we decided to do this, we also completely revamped our website. Uh, but if you uh, look hard enough, you'll find something that says careers. And if you look under careers, you'll find some positions. And there is a podcast intern position. Uh, I don't know. I tried searching for it on the uh, uh, using the search bar and found all kinds of crap, but not that. So uh, don't bother uh, uh, unless you're a better searcher than I am. Uh, but you ought to be if you want to be a podcast intern. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, also, if you've got somebody to suggest as a guest interview, please do send it uh, to us at cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com uh, and we will give you one of our highly coveted Cyberlaw Podcast mugs, uh, one of which was going to Matthew Hyman as we speak. Uh, we've got uh, uh, some good interviews coming up. Pete Kronos, uh, uh, who's the Chief Information Security Officer at Turner, uh, Michael Page, who is uh, an ethics uh, expert at OpenAI, among other guests. Uh, so we hope you'll join us for those and other episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 